Uh, we're journeying through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's called uh, Messy Church, Merciful God. Now, if you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, I think it's Miss Cassie is back there. And then is Aaron, are you doing fourth and fifth grade? So if you're a fourth and fifth grader, go with Aaron. Uh, if you're younger and want to hang out with Miss Cassie and some of our other teachers, she's right over there. Feel free to join them. It's awesome. There we go. If you're looking for seats, uh, there's a number of ones over here. Uh, where are we got? We got a couple in the front if you want to dare that. Uh, over in the middle over here, there's a couple seats. You're going to go for it. Thanks. It's awesome. Brave. Uh, and would you mind just closing that door so the draft doesn't go in? Thanks. All right, so what we're doing right now is we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, or working our way through. If you haven't been here for the last few weeks, we've set some of the scaffolding, especially historically and culturally. So if you want to go back to some of that, the first two messages in this series were really focused on building the context. But I'll do a little bit this morning just so that we're sort of all on the same page. So Paul is this guy who is a persecutor of the church. He has this profound experience of God. Then he becomes an apostle, one sent by God to talk about God and plant churches, do those kind of things. He does that uh, through the land of Turkey and in Greece in the Middle East and uh, the Mediterranean. He spends a number of time, number of trips. He spends 18 months, though, with the people in Corinth. It's the longest he spends in any one location. So you have Paul, he's in Corinth, and he's building a community there. He's building a church. He's investing in this group of people. But then he leaves, right? Because he's planting churches in other places too. He goes, uh, and what we see in the text and in this letter is that between the time Paul leaves and when he writes this letter, a period of three to four years, things start to unravel a little bit. There's a lot of division. There's some things that are not going great which is part of the occasion of this letter. Now, you've probably learned something at some point and thought it was central, and then you start to drift. I mean, has anyone ever had that experience with Jesus? A few of us, all three. There you go. <laughs> There's three honest people in the room. Um, but the idea is, right, it's easy to drift, and that's what's happened with the Corinthians. They've kind of drifted. And even though Paul has said, hey, it's all about Jesus, they've started playing favorites with different teachers and different people in their midst, and they're arguing about all these ideas. And so in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 2, right, sort of writes about, hey guys, your faith really should rest in the cross. And it is lived out through the Spirit. And that's really the main idea or two ideas that Paul is going to hone in on in chapter 2, right? Your faith rests in the cross and it's lived out through the Spirit. Now, because there's a lot of chunks here, uh, the first chunk I want to focus on is verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. This is what he writes. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what Paul is doing right here is he's creating an intentional contrast between his approach and these uh, teachers that are also in Corinth called the sophists. 
In classical Greek rhetoric, you have this real value for truth. So what you're trying to do is figure out ways, how do we articulate truth so that people land at truth? The sophists in Corinth, that's not their goal. Their goal is to win arguments. And their hope is they go in and they are trying to sell themselves. They're trying to create a brand, right? They're trying to get in there and then people are going to be like, I like you. And then the hope is they'll create a following and then they'll get sponsors that'll basically fund what they're doing. And Paul's like, yeah, you notice like that's not how I did it. Paul's really concerned about sort of people not focusing on him, but focusing on Jesus instead. Paul's not trying to get them to be like, oh, I like Paul. You know, of all the teachers here who I like, I like Paul. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't care if you like me. I want you to love Jesus. Right? This is why he says, right? I didn't come with lofty speech. I came in fear and trembling, not pomp and bravado. Right? He wants their faith to rest in God and his power, not the wisdom of men. And I think we get this, right? The Corinthians, Paul leaves, right? And you have to have a little empathy for them. Paul shows up in Corinth. He spends 18 months. They learn about Jesus. They learn about faith. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have 2,000 years of church history and theology behind them. They cannot go to the library and check out a book on this. Who they have is Paul. And now Paul leaves. And things start to unravel. Now, I think we get sort of this idea of Okay, how can things unravel? How can we drift? How can we have our faith shift from being in Jesus and the cross to other things? I was thinking about it this week, and I was trying to imagine sort of like, what are the main things for me personally that sort of affect how I am, like where my faith rests? I think there's a number of seasons of my life where it's really rested in knowledge, right? Like, do I know enough? Right, maybe you relate to that. You read books and it gives you a sense of control. And as you experience a sense of control, then you're like, ah, oh, I feel good. But you've started, slightly started to shift from actually resting in Jesus and his cross now to your own ability to narrate things, understand things. These are not popsicles. Uh, those are people. The other thing I was thinking is I think also our faith can rest in whether people like us. Right? We start to look out and we start to think, wow, this person likes me. I must be doing pretty awesome. And then gradually we start to pay attention more to what people have to say about us rather than what God might have to say about us. Or this one, this is my version of, you know, are you good enough? Right? Sometimes we start to rest in our own performance like, man, I'm really good. I'm kind. I'm a pretty decent guy. Right? The scales are tipping in my favor. I must be okay. But Paul's like, no, no, no. It's not about you and your behavior. It's about Jesus and what he does on the cross. This is my version of, I think we can start, especially in our cultural moment, we really can put a lot of value into uh, experience accumulation. That's the Eiffel Tower, right? I saw this. I did this. I have a story to tell about this. Aren't I awesome? And we quickly start to focus a little bit less on who Jesus is and a little bit more on the stories we're trying to accumulate that are about all the cool places we've seen, all the cool things we have done. I think if we're honest, we can also start to put a lot 
of our well, our sort of worth, our trust into whether we're doing the right churchy behaviors. I went to church every week, or every, uh, well, not every day, every week this month. I read my Bible. I did the churchy stuff. And Paul is saying, hey guys, like, no, 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 it's about Jesus and about his cross. This is where our faith needs to rest. Right, this is why Paul writes in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, contextually and linguistically, we know this is the image. Imagine Paul has this massive table of options. You go into this huge table and Paul could pick from any of them. Right? He is like a first century PhD. Dude is super smart. He's traveled, grew up in Tarsus, University City. He has all kinds of options. Jesus, or Paul, makes a decision. Right? This word uh, decided is krino in Greek. And what the grammatic, the text, or the, the tense of the verb tells us is that Paul, maybe on his journey, his 50-mile walk from Athens to Corinth, he decides, all right, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take all these options on the table and I'm going to knock them all off. I'm going to take everything off the table and knock it off, except basically two things, Jesus and him crucified. And that's what Paul talks about, right? That our faith doesn't rest in our knowledge or how much people like us or whether we're good and decent human beings, whether we've traveled all over the place, whether we're doing the churchy stuff, it rests in Jesus and his work on the cross, Right, Paul wants this audience that he is speaking to when he shows up to Corinth to not think, I need Paul or I need anything else. What I really need is Jesus and what he did on the cross. Now, we know the Corinthians heard this message, right? Paul told them, hey guys, this is what I'm about. But instead, right, they should decide to kind of go their own way. And we know that they start picking leaders that they really like. Oh, I like this guy. I like this guy. Now they're arguing between one another about whose theology is the best, whose is the best. And then rather than actually following Jesus, they're arguing with one another about what their preferences and their theological distinctions that they want to emphasize. Now for us, you know, it's a little different. It, certainly this happens in churches. Certainly it leads to division. Certainly it undermines actually following Jesus. But I think for us, it's a little different. So if you were to take this text, right, fast forward at about 2,000 years into our cultural moment, right, we live in a culture focused on authenticity. That's sort of the driving heartbeat of how our culture works. So the idea is this. The way you approach truth is, right, okay, there's a buffet, and you, based on your inner desire, what you appreciate, what you like, your taste, you get to choose what things are right, what things are wrong, what is true, and what is false. And you start to orient that according to your own inner compass. That is how our culture approaches truth, belief, religion, spirituality, whatever. And on one level, this is good. Like, this is true. God creates us unique beings, unique creatures that are meant to live out our authentic selves in the world. Totally true. The thing is, we've inverted it. Rather than saying God created us and we live out of God the way God made us as authentic beings, we say, all right, I am here. 
Now, I get to choose whatever I want is about what is true, good, beautiful, right? But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, hey guys, to us, it's not about you choosing. When you put yourself at the center, you are basically making yourself God. Saying this is how the universe works. And Paul's saying, hey, no, no, no. Hey guys, let's go back to Jesus and him crucified. Because in the end, like Paul is more concerned about us knowing Jesus right, than us going to the buffet of authenticity and picking what lines best with us. Now, I think Paul's goal in this, right, is so that our faith is rooted, it rests in Jesus' actions and not ours, right? Not our our knowledge, not our goodness, not our churchiness, not our authentic expression. Because the truth is, right, if you talk to my wife or my dad or my stepmom who are here today and said, hey, when, when Tony's just being Tony, you know, is that always work out great? They would be like, no, you know? No, because when I'm just being me, some good things happen, some don't. The ultimate thing is not about me being me, it's about me being shaped and molded into Jesus' image. And right, when I, my worth, my well-being, my trust is in the person of Jesus, what happens? I experience the power of God's transformation, right? Because my faith not rests in me being me, but in God being God. And what does God do? He transforms us from the inside out. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he writes in verse five. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wants our faith not to rest in us being able to pick and choose all the cool things in life, but to rest in the power of God and the person of Jesus. And then our, our transformation starts to mirror what happens to Jesus. Right, Jesus, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, man, not my will, but yours be done. And what does he do? He submits to the Father. He goes, it is crucified. And then what happens? He's resurrected by the power of God through the Spirit. And then our transformation mirrors that. So as we let go, right, we trust in the Father. We trust in Jesus. We die to self, right? Lose your life so that you might gain it. Pick up your cross and follow me. We die to ourselves. We then are aligned with the life and power of Jesus. What happens? We change. So that our faith might not rest in us, but in Jesus and the power of his cross. So that we might experience the transformation we hope for, but often find so elusive because we're eating at the buffet of the self. We're putting our self at the center. And when the self is at the center, not a lot of awesome things happen. And we see this in Corinth, right? Paul's like, hey, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And the sophists are like, it's not about me, but keep affirming me, you know? It's not about me. Keep going, you know? Give me more. I want more accolades. Paul's like, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Our faith rests in the cross, which then brings us to part two, this focus on the spirit, right? Our faith rests in the cross, but is lived out in the spirit, It's a bit long, so I'm going to divide into two sections. This is six through nine. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not, or yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of glory. 
before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood that, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? And Paul is speaking to this group, and they have gone, they've gone and sort of listened to all these speakers. They know all this knowledge. They're like, man, this office said this, this teacher said that, I like this guy, I like that guy. And here comes Paul. And he's like, sort of the single, boring drumbeat, right? Jesus, the cross. Jesus, the cross. Jesus, the cross. And they're like, but does Paul have anything for the mature? In Greek, the word is teleos. It means like arrived or the end. Does it have anything for the arrived? You know, we've arrived. Paul, you're kind of basic. Right? We've learned from all these people, we're arrived. You have wisdom for us. Paul says two things. He's like, uh, you might want to check yourself a little bit, right? The rulers of this age crucified God. These people thought they were wise. Guess what they did? They strung up God on a cross, tortured him. Sometimes we think we are wise and we miss the boat entirely. You might want to check yourself, guys. Slow your roll. Right, and as they're looking at the sophists, they're saying, man, this guy's really smart. He speaks way better than Paul. This guy's like quoting all these people. He clearly knows what he's doing. Paul's like, man, sometimes the wisdom of God is not that easy to discern. Yeah, I might speak about the cross and Jesus a lot, but it's not because I don't know things. It's because the Spirit has revealed those things to me, and that is what I'm trying to share with you. Which then goes into Paul's section on the Spirit 10 through 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of Christ so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Right, so Paul is going back, he's like, hey guys, I know what God is up to. But it's not because I read all the right books. It's not because I somehow have this like stranglehold on truth. Right, when so many people have missed the boat. Paul says, you know, in, first, in verse 10, he says this. Right, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. How do you want to get mature? You want to get mature? Well, it's not because you can sort of figure it out and make sense of it all. No, the Spirit, the God reveals through the Spirit these things to us. Right, and then the next verse in 12 and 13. Now we have received, right, not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit is from God. So God is not saying, hey, you have to learn from the Spirit, and guess what? You have to really try hard to get it. 
No, we have actually received it. If you were a follower of Jesus in this room, like you have received access to the Spirit. Why? Because God wants us to what? Understand these things that are freely given to us by God. Right, and God is so generous that through this process of giving the Spirit, revealing that we might understand, we actually get the mind of Christ. So this Wednesday, we were, our well community was meeting. There's like 10 of us and uh, the leader is a, a therapist. She was leading this study and she was talking about this thing called mind sight. This is like a real thing uh, and you all know it. It's that moment when you're in an argument or talking to someone and you're pretty sure you know exactly what they're thinking. You know, like imagine you're fighting with your spouse and you're like, oh, I know what's going on here, you know? You diagnose it super quickly. Who here has done that? Not very many of us. Liars. <laughs> you think what someone else, you're like, oh, I totally know what's going on here, right? I think my accuracy on this is like easy in the 80s. Who thinks they're at least in like above 70%? Yeah, thank you. You know, there's all kinds of studies on this. Your accuracy and my accuracy is between 10 and 20%. That means 80 to 90% of the time, you're wrong. We think we can read other people's minds. And what Paul is saying here, actually, the Spirit reveals things to us. And we actually are so connected that our mind is at one with God's. That we are actually have the same mind as God. But when we try and do it on our own, what happens? 10 to 20%. Right? And this is what the Corinthians are doing. Right? They're so engaged with the arguments, their own arguments, their own thoughts, they're missing out on the thoughts of God. I was trying to think of a visual way to sort of illustrate this. Um, but I think they're basically trying to scaffold what they think is truth. Right? So they're trying to build a house of truth. Right? They're trying to build this house and they put up the walls. You know, they put up a door. And the idea is, right, they're trying to build this house that they think is truth. And they do maybe a good job. Maybe it's beautiful. You know, maybe it looks good. But what the text is saying so clearly is that this is not how knowledge of God is developed. We don't scaffold it. We don't build something. We don't construct it with all the available raw materials and data that we learn in books and in conversation, right? How does it happen? The Spirit gives it to us, right? It is revealed from God. It is not scaffolded. It is not us at a buffet trying to cobble together the best insights in front of us that align with our sort of deepest sense of self. Knowledge, wisdom of God is not built like a house. It is revealed by God. One of the things, though, is we live in a world where knowledge is constructed like you construct a house. We live in a world where you do your best, right, at the buffet to construct something, to pick all the things that you think align with you. You live in a world, we live in a culture where we all construct our knowledge. 
And so what happens in that world when you're like, well, I'm trying to hear what God has to say to me? You look like a fool. Right? And Paul says this. Right? He says this. This person who's trying to construct their knowledge this way, man, trying to receive it from the Spirit looks like folly. That word is the Greek root of the word, English word moron. You look like a moron when you're trying to depend on the Spirit for your knowledge, for your growth, for your maturity. Paul's like, yeah, that's going to happen. But the thing is, right, when you're sitting there trying to receive from the Spirit, it's not like you just sit on the rock and are like, all right, God, when are you going to show up, you know? You don't just lay on the floor and wait for days and months and years. Paul says that these truths, the truths of the Spirit are what? Spiritually discerned. This is not totally a passive thing. This word discernment requires, it's about like investigation, it's through study, it's for closely paying attention to what the Spirit is up to. We don't construct it, but we are deeply attentive to what is God doing in our lives? What is God doing around us? And that shapes then how we live in the world, how we see the meaning and truth in life. I was trying to think of a couple of different practices that I thought might like help us. Help us to sort of recenter into the spirit as we drift because the cultural drift uh, around us is towards pulling together, building a house of knowledge. It's towards the sort of posture of authenticity where we sit at the table of authenticity and pick and choose truth like it's a buffet. What are some practices that help us recenter that the nature of life with God is shaped and lived out by the Spirit? First thing I thought of uh, was fasting. And the reason I say this is because uh, fasting is a way where you can remove something that you normally do in order to create space for the Spirit of God to speak. That's the function of fasting. I've been really surprised the last two years. The last two years, uh, I think I make it through December, which often can be like a little hectic in the pastoral world. And I think I'm going to make it into January, and maybe you have this experience of like, oh man, January's going to be awesome, whole new thing. And I feel like January is often the busiest month of my year. No one told me that, but it's certainly been true the last two years. And by the end of January, I am so out of whack spiritually. The only thing that has really helped me is I've taken like a four to six day fast the last two years as a way to recenter myself in the spirit of God. I had to take something away and what does that do, right? You stop and I do this liquid fast. So I'm not eating food, right? Like edible food. And I'm like, oh, I'm not eating food. Oh yeah, why am I here? What is true wisdom, right? So it's a, a visceral and creaturely reminder that I need God. Another one is just being in the scriptures. I think it's just so simple in life for all the voices that tell us who we are and what we need to do, right, to speak into us. Sometimes I just need to settle into the scriptures as a way to remind and ground myself that I'm not just about what everyone else says, but I'm about Jesus. This last week, uh, just trying to figure out how to connect with God. I have certain practices and 
One of the days, uh, Psalm 71 just leapt off the page. 71.3, it says this, Be my rock of refuge to which I can continually come. And it was this reminder on that morning, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, you are my rock of refuge. My faith should rest in you and that I can continually come to you. The average American is bombarded between 4,000 and 10,000 messages a day by the advertising industry about who you are and what your life should be about, what you should look like. Sometimes we need to come back to Jesus and be reminded that he is our rock of refuge. Third one is Sabbath and solitude. And this is about disconnecting from all the inputs in our life. This is advertising, but it's also just, just, it's the rat race. It's all the different things that shape our life. Uh, Sean Parker, uh, maybe this one's better. Uh, In uh, 1967, there was a Senate subcommittee. And the Senate subcommittee met and they said, you know, because of technology, guys, it's going to be so much better. And they predicted in 1985 that the average American would work 22 hours a week and have 27 weeks off a year. Raise your hand if that matches your reality. Yeah. The retired people are like, it doesn't even match my reality, you know? <laughs> the point is, life is busy. And sometimes we need to take breaks from that drive, from those inputs in order to settle in to reality. We need to live our lives out by the Spirit. So what I do is right, I, every Friday, I put my phone on airplane mode and I go out into the woods, I go do something, but no one can reach me. I disconnect, I unplug so that I can re-plug into God because in that, those six days between those Sabbath times, almost certainly I have drifted off course. Sean Parker was the first president of Facebook. He said when he looked back on his early years, this is what he writes, Facebook was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. He continues, we were exploiting the vulnerability of human psychology. I'll tell you right now, like Silicon Valley, the way that our world is working right now, they are not concerned about your spiritual well-being. They're not. Mary Oliver says this, she says this, powerful quote, It won't be projected though. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And where you give your attention is going to affect your devotion. If you're giving your attention to a thousand things out there, you are not going to be attentive. You're not going to be discerning what is the Spirit doing in your life. Your faith will not rest in the cross. You will not live out this by the Spirit because your attention is going to be pulled onto so many different things. You will lose track of what is most important and most valuable. Right, this is why as a body we talk about able so often. Right, some of you are like, again, you know. Able is our acronym. These are meant to be weekly practices that we all embrace. We are all called to attend 
to the presence and speaking voice of God, recognizing the Spirit speaks to us. Bless people inside and outside the church. Learn from the Scriptures to reorient our mind, our life, how we see ourselves in the world according to the text, not according to the buffet spirituality or the way we construct our house of knowledge. Eat with people inside, outside the church. These are anchoring practices. This morning, we talked about at the very beginning, like the goal of this message, right, was to sort of unearth this idea that faith rests in the cross, not in our performance, not in our likability. And it's lived out in the Spirit. So I have two questions for you as we sort of, we're going to shift to communion and worship. Like, what is your faith resting in? Right, if we go back to the board, right, like, if you were to look at these and allow them to be sort of icons of your devotion, where is your faith resting? What people think about you? And we all have faith in something. Is your faith in your own goodness? Whether you're good enough? Is it in sort of all the stories you can tell? That you're a traveled, articulate, cultured person? You have adventures, you're accumulating experiences? Is it in your own knowledge? Your own likability? Right, your own, you're a good churchy person. You do the right behaviors. Or is it in the person of Jesus and what he did in the cross? Right, when we celebrate communion together, what we're going to do is try and resettle into the fact that we are able to grow and transform as spiritual beings because Jesus is for us. Jesus united us through the Father on the cross, brought us into a band of brothers and sisters so that we could grow together. And one day, Jesus will come again and establish his kingdom on earth. Are we being shaped into that kingdom now? And the second question is, you know, is your faith being lived out by the Spirit? And there's two ways to evaluate this. One is simply to say, all right, like, what are the habits and practices that anchor you in the Spirit? What are those in your life? And I mentioned three, fasting, scripture, solitude. Do you have those practices? Or are you just sort of constructing your own house of cards? I think for most of us, we're not bad people but we're so swayed by the things around us that we so easily lose touch with what God, God's best for us. Right, the scripture says, when Paul quotes it, it says this. Gotta find it. What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I think so often we forget that God's plan is actually better than our plan. We think that if we can just put together the most awesome resume self, we can put together the best schedule that our plan will rock. And what Paul is saying is, no. Actually, the best human flourishing happens when we're dependent on the Spirit. Why? Because God has better and more loving plans for us than we could ever imagine. I just ask you this morning, are you being shaped, living out your faith by the Spirit? I'm going to invite the worship team up. 
Uh, and what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a moment just to celebrate communion together. And if you're serving communion, if you just maybe come over here. Now, one of the reasons we celebrate communion together is actually gets at the very heart of this passage. One of the reasons we celebrate communion together is to reground ourselves in Jesus' sacrifice for us. Remember, he's at a dinner table with his friends. This is the night before he is going to be crucified. And he looks around and he grabs a piece of bread at the table. He gives thanks for it and he takes it and he breaks it in front of them. Right, because the next day his body will be broken for them. And he says, my body will be broken for you. And then he offers it to him. He says, take it. Eat it. Right, because he wants to be the life inside of our bodies. And he goes out on the table and he finds something containing wine. And he says to them, you know, because tomorrow he is going to be tortured and crucified and he's going to bleed out. And he says, you know, my blood will be poured out for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. And we come to the table, to these elements this morning, remembering Jesus' sacrifice, trying to recenter ourselves, reground ourselves in him in his sacrifice on the cross. And there's all these things competing for our attention. And I think as we enter worship and as we celebrate communion, as you come up, you're gonna have an opportunity. The person up here is gonna have bread and you're gonna have a choice. Do I choose Jesus to be the bread that satisfies me? And you're gonna have an opportunity to dip it in the blood to say, do I choose in this moment to allow the sacrifice of Jesus to wash over me and cleanse me? And we're going to all come together down the center as a way of saying, hey, we're all about Jesus together. This isn't just an individual thing where I rock it my way and you rock it your way. We all center ourselves as a body in the person of Jesus. I'm just going to pray for us now. Jesus, we come before you just recognizing that our hearts are wayward. We are tricked all too often into resting and trusting in other things that are not you. God, there are so many distractions out there. It's so easy to not actually receive from your spirit the wisdom we need to grow and we start longing and groping for other things. And Jesus, in this moment, we say, please help us. Ground our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our souls in you. Before we come up to communion, God, I just pray that we would give to you whatever distracts, whatever pulls us away from you. Church, this is just an opportunity just to say, all right, Jesus, this is what I got. If you have things you feel like you need to confess, tell him he is a loving and a good God.
If you're not sure what you think about Jesus this morning and you want to come up anyway, just say, hey, can you give me a blessing? And whoever's up here will just say a blessing over you just so that you know that you are encouraged and that God is with you on this journey. Holy Spirit, come among us. Speak to us. Reveal yourself to us this morning. Come, Lord.